Well, just a, a couple of items of interest which I have been looking at and taken a note of. Here's an interesting one. We, you know, we hear a lot about America's Bible Belt and we hear a lot about uh, all the the American presidents way back have all been born again Christians and we hear of freedom and they're in Iraq to, to produce democracy and all the rest of it. But listen to this. The Ohio State House, that's the state government of uh, Ohio, one of the states in America, has recently disallowed Christian pastors from mentioning the name of Jesus when they open the daily session with prayer. When Pastor Keith Hamblin of Calvary Bible Church in Lima prayed in Jesus' name on the floor of the Ohio State House, Democratic minority leader Chris Redfern stomped off the floor in protest. And then the Republican majority leader he obviously catering to the religious pluralists in the house he, he said he's not afraid to offend Christians but here's what he said I have received several legitimate complaints from members recently about the disregard for the guest minister guidelines more specifically increasing t the increasing tendency of guest invocators that's a, a typical American word of prayers people who pray, invocators, to use language referring to a particular deity. If a prayer is not received in writing and approved by the clerk's office at least 72 hours prior to a session day, the guest invocator will be asked not to deliver the prayer. Decided the Supreme Court as the authority to police public Christian prayers and asks for the representatives to help enforce this policy with your guests. Isn't that incredible? In America. In God we trust is on their coins and everything. And But meanwhile here's another thing which is of interest. This is written by a man called Bennett who was a Roman Catholic priest for a long time. He studied in Rome and he comes from Dublin. But he's writing here, he said, On July the 10th, 2007, Pope Benedict the 16th released a new decree. In it, the Pope has restated his conviction that the Roman Catholic Church is the one church founded by Jesus Christ and that other churches are either defective or not true churches at all. What is new in this document is the authoritative statement that Christian communities born out of the reformation of the 16th century cannot be called churches in the proper sense of course prior to this in September 2000 when he was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger guardian of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith he had stunned the ecumenical movement by launching an assault on all other churches with the Vatican decree Dominus Iussus prepared by his office as an arch conservative true to the pre-Vatican II doctrinal rigidity that viewed Bible Christians as heretics rather than separated brethren Pope Benedict has long sought to correct 
what he describes as erroneous interpretations of Vatican Council II's ecumenical intent. The basis for Benedict's denunciation is given in an answer to the question he posed in the document. Here's what he said. Christ established here on earth only one church and instituted it as a visible and spiritual community that from its beginning and throughout the centuries has always existed and will ever exist and in which alone are found all the elements that Christ himself instituted. This church, constituted and organized in this world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. And that's put a big stumbling block in the way of ecumenism. The presumption here is that the Apostle Peter went to Rome and that each Pope is the successor of Peter. And this conjecture is groundless. The scripture makes mention neither of Peter ever being at Rome nor of successors to Peter or to any other Apostle. The criteria for apostleship are given in scripture. The position of the apostles was unique to them and to Paul, all directly chosen by Jesus Christ with no hint of succession. In the New Testament, the apostles appointed elders and deacons rather than other apostles. Yet the biblically understood claim of apostolic succession is, is the very foundation the biblical unsubstantiated claim of apostolic succession is the very foundation of the papacy papal primacy and authority are based on it and it's all based on a myth Peter was never in Rome the Lord God never entrusted his truth to a personal succession of any body of men such a concept is hopelessly flawed. If one link failed, the whole sequence after it would be invalid. Yet Benedict has again hitched a star to the notion of apostolic succession. The papacy, as usual, rules by fiat. That's authoritative order or command, a decree. This time it is via Benedict's dogmatic statement. It's amazing that the Roman Catholic Church is based on a fallacy, a complete and utter fallacy, as regards Peter being the Bishop of Rome. But there we are. Interesting. If you wanted to look that up, if anybody wanted to look it up on the website, it's www.bereanbeacon.org slash decree.pdf and decree has a capital D. Now we go and look at Deuteronomy 9. It's always nice to, when you read those things to get back to common sense. Deuteronomy 9. We're just going to read a few verses in chapter 9. Hear, O Israel. Hear, hear means give strict attention. That's what the, the word means there. Hear, O Israel. Listen with attention. Thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, 
whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say who can stand before the children of Anak understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire he shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face so shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly for as the Lord hath said unto thee and we just stop there there, there are three little commands in that just a moment but here let's listen with attention understand if to use our understanding when we look at God's word and then he says drive them out drive them out that were the three things in that those three verses just that, that are, we should note you know they weren't going to go over Jordan that particular day but it was going to happen very soon they were to move off and enter the land but as we shall see and as we shall find out Moses had not quite yet finished in his endeavours to ensure that the people carried into that good land as he called it a basis for living in that land in accordance with the will of God he was determined they were going to uh, live by God's standards in recent weeks we've seen how Paul and Peter and other apostles writing in the New Testament were also concerned that their converts and people like you and me should be aware of the doctrines and truths of scriptures in order that we too should know how to live amongst nations greater and mightier than us and that's why Paul in Galatians said that I might live unto God that's the, as we live in this world we as Christians should not be living unto the, the prince of this world but live unto God Galatians 2.19 Moses he so cared for his people he just wanted them above all things to live in that good land in the way that God wanted them to live that was, that was all he wanted but it was vital he knew that he would not be there God had said to him that he would not enter into the promised land he wouldn't be there to guide them to pray for them to watch over them to nurture them and despite the fact that he knew that the reason he wouldn't be there was because of the people's disobedience and they provoked him to anger he still loved them and he was going to do all that he could to encourage and plead with them not to forget God's laws and commandments he wanted them to live by God's laws by God's power helping them to be overcomers to live in God's way and by God's will to defeat the enemies and to look to God rather than to look at the enemies that's a secret always keep our eyes on Jesus and it's a good lesson for us today they had come through the wilderness that was behind them start looking forward you're going into the land 
Start looking forward. Paul writing in Philippines, he could say, this one thing I do, forgetting these things, those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. For our conversation, and we saw that some time ago, our form of government, the laws by which we live, are from heaven. We're not going to be living in accordance with the the nations round about us. And it's from heaven we look. We look to heaven, for it's from heaven that we expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come. The Israelites were to live under totally different rules and regulations than the people round about them. That was the secret. The nations round about, these nations which are stronger and greater than they, they were idolaters, extremely evil and wicked, displeasing to God and under God's judgment. And it's not much different when we look around the world today. You know, this last week, read the newspapers. What a week. Murders of children by children. That Hell's Angel fellow just gunned down on the motorway. Shootings. Pedophile let go free from church. Having abused even babies. Wars. Friendly fire natural disasters it gets worse and worse every day no wonder Paul said that his one hope was that he was looking to heaven for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ now you know Moses if he was nothing he was he was a realist if he was anything he was a realist He set out the situation as they were going into the promised land exactly as it was. He did not wrap it up in flowery language. He told them the difficulties they were up against. This is one of the troubles nowadays, especially in nominal church settings. People, you can't understand what people are saying. Words have come to mean only what the speaker wants them to mean. You know, you listen to government ministers when they're being interviewed and they say something and to you and me it seems you know exactly what they have said but once they are challenged then we get the old chestnut always taken out of context or you'll get another, another minister telling you what he thinks the other minister said and so it goes on and on and again and again they'll say I want to be clear on this but they're not being clear, never it's all double talk you know President Clinton, he, he, he said a famous thing, it all depends he was challenged about something and he said it all depends what the meaning of is, is you know, ludicrous thing to say you try and pin down somebody who believes say an infant baptism as taught uh, and you you will 
try and compare what he says with what the teaching of scripture is and you can't pin them down because the words they use are different to the words of scripture it's like eating jelly, watery jelly with a fork you can't, you can't do it, you can't pin people down because the words they use we are talking to Chris just a while ago the, the words that the Catholics use for grace is a completely different meaning to them as what we mean and what the Bible teaches about grace we've been talking over the last few weeks about the emergent church and what is happening with, the, with, with them and they are doing something which they call contextualizing scripture now then they, they say there's no ultimate truth there's no ultimate truth you can't say that this is the truth you discuss it and thus word of God subservient to the notions and ideas of the listeners if God's word is not the ultimate truth and you start trying to discuss whether it is the truth or not then it becomes what man's ideas are in relation to the truth contextual theology says rather than the Bible moulding our lives as a rod of truth let the Christian's life in some way mould the truths of the Bible it, it's all twisted round but let's get back to Moses he was a plain speaker and he spoke in plain languages about the troubles ahead he says these nations are greater and mightier than thyself cities great and fenced up to heaven a people great and tall the children of the Anakims whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say who can stand before the children of Anak you know the last time we, we spoke about the giants was at the very beginning of Deuteronomy the last time these people had seen the giants was way back in Numbers 13:33. they had been sent the 12 spies had been sent in to spy out the land and they had come back with a report oh it was a beautiful land it was a good land and they had fruit and veg to show how beautiful the land was but then they made this report and there we saw the giants the sons of Anak these same men that are coming against them now they come from the giants and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers and so we were in their sight that was the report they gave all oh, the land was good but the children of Anak are there they all saw the giants they had also all seen the good land but they took their eyes and their thinking away from God onto the giants and they looked at themselves and they felt puny compared with the giants they felt like grasshoppers small little grasshoppers compared with these giant walking through the land but this, these spies how did they know 
what the Anakims thought about them. They say, in their eyes, they say, we were as in our own sight as grasshoppers, and we were in their sight, we were as grasshoppers. They were spies. They shouldn't have been seen. They probably weren't seen by the, the giants. But they relied on their feeling of inadequacy and their imagination went amok. As soon as they removed themselves from trusting in God, trusting the God who had redeemed them from the power of Egypt, as soon as they took their eyes off God, then their imaginations ran amok. And it's interesting actually, I was looking at this and we know that the people of Jericho were scared stiff of the deeds and the reputation of the God of the Israelites. Here they were afraid. What did the people of Canaan think of the God of Israel? Well, look at Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9. Joshua 2 verse 9 this is moving forward to when they were going to go into the land and Joshua sent two spies into the land to see what was happening Moses had died by this time but what did the people in Canaan think of the God of Israel well here's what Rahab who hid the spies said and she said unto the men I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt and what he did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sion and Og whom he utterly destroyed as soon as we had heard these things our hearts did melt neither did there remain any more courage (coughs) in any man because of you for the Lord your God he is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath that's what they thought of the God of Israel but the Israelites themselves were afraid Judges uh, Joshua 5 and verse 1 later on and it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites which were on the side of Jordan westward and all the kings of the Canaanites which were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until they were passed over that their heart melted Neither was there spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. Just one more in Joshua 6.1. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. The reputation of the God of Israel had gone before them. And they were scared stiff all those seven nations which were supposedly stronger and mightier than the children of Israel were scared if only the spies 
had realized the original spies the 12 spies who went to spy the land had realized that God had it all organized they would have been saved 40 years wandering around the wilderness until that whole generation passed away God was fighting for them I looked at the story of David the story of David and the giant another man who had to defeat a giant a young slip of a lad the giant had been terrorizing the children of Israel Goliath came down strutted down and went back up again somebody come and fight me whoever wins we'll be there if we win you'll be our servants if they win if, if, if he wins I'll be your servant and all that terrified them but look David came forward to fight the giant went down to the brook took out five smooth stones put them in his shepherd's grip ran towards the giant the giant was abusive but here's what David said thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defiled defied this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands that was the way the Israelites in Moses' day should have gone up against these seven nations the battle was the Lord's God said that he would go before them understand this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth before you as a consuming fire he shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face oh that they had understood that 40 years previously by the way this was you made a comment earlier why did David take five stones out of the brook it was because people say Goliath had four other brothers and if you want to read about that read 2 Samuel 21 14 to 16 and you'll see that the other four giants were killed eventually by David and his men but that's just a point but just as God gave David victory over the giants so victory was equally assured to the Israelites as they entered into the land to possess it it was theirs for the taking that's all they had to go, go in and possess it believe what God had said and go in and take it and Moses said you must understand you must recognize understand therefore that the Lord goes before you 
The Lord thy God goes before you. He brought them out of Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness. He had done such wonderful things. He brought water out of the rock. He would fed them with manna. That God is still with you. Go into the land. And you'll drive them out. But you know sadly. They failed. They failed the test. They didn't drive the people out of the land. They went in. But they failed to totally clear the land of the nations. And yet, God always had a plan for his people. Yes, he would permit them, he would permit them eventually to be taken captive to Babylon. Because of their unfaithfulness. But even then, even then he could promise them. Jeremiah 29 I know the thoughts that I think toward you saith the Lord talking of Israel thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end then shall ye call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart he promised them that he would still be their God and in the future God still has a wonderful plan which will be permanently fulfilled for his people in the millennium and we like the Israelites have to live in this wicked world we have to live in this world a world it's a word where Satan goes round as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5 Be sober. Be of a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. Not in our own strength, but in the faith which God provides. Knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. You're not the only one in the world which is going through a hard time. That's what he's saying to the people. Throughout the world there are other Christians who are suffering for their faith. Don't get this poor old me syndrome. There are others out in the world who are suffering. But he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Oh, God will be faithful to you and to me. You see, the real problem with Israel was that they would not submit to God and to his word. We are proud I may not think that I am proud, but if I am unwilling to submit totally to God and to his word, it is because we are proud. Whether we believe it or not, or whether we think it or not, it's a sense of pride that we do not submit to God's word. It's really saying we're professing 
to be able to do better than God with our own lives. We don't need him. James 4, 6, God resisteth the proud. God resisteth the proud. He's not on the side of the people who are proud. But he gives grace unto the humble. Moses was a lovely, humble man. We should be humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Because if we don't submit to God, we're proud. And God resisteth the proud. Resist the devil. Oh, yes. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. A hard lesson for Israel. And a very hard lesson for us. You see, God wanted them to have a full, joyful life. God wants you and me to have a full, joyful life. We've been released from captivity. From the captivity of Satan. And if you look at Psalm 126, a lovely Psalm 126. Just a couple of little verses in there. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. They were so happy. The people who had been saved out of captivity, they were so happy, they thought they were dreaming. Do you ever people say that? Oh, this is like a dream. What's happening to me? That's the way they felt. They were laughing and singing. They were so happy. Those living around were so affected that they even said, The Lord hath done great things for them. And they in turn the people said yes you're right the Lord has done great things for us whereof we are glad do you remember we talked about this a week or so ago do you remember when we first came to Christ the first time we accepted when we accepted Christ how wonderful it was it was like a dream it was like a dream and people around you noticed saw a change in you that was the first love. The Bible talks about a first love. We saw how that church in Revelation lost our first love. Have I still that first love we spoke about? Spoke about a few weeks ago. You know, David sinned grievously, caused the death of a man. And he prayed in Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. If we've lost that first love, we pray that God will restore in each of us the joy that we had. The joy and laughter that it was as if we were dreaming. And people noticed. May God restore in us, in all our hearts, that first love. 
and help to maintain that first love daily in our walk with the Lord Jesus day by day him that says I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the son of God discloses he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet the birds hush their singing and the melody that he gives to me within my heart is ringing and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joys we share as we tarry there none other has ever known you know Adam in the garden had a wonderful relationship with God but sin entered in and that beautiful relationship was broken God walked in the garden and he called Adam where art thou one of the saddest calls in the world God wanted fellowship with his creation but Adam hid himself because that fellowship had been broken by sin God still calls through the corridors of eternity to a sinful world Adam where art thou God wanted fellowship with his chosen people God wants fellowship with you and me may we show that fellowship by our lives and by responding to his great love for us in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die and by us following closely to follow beside him day by day living a life of faith through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives may we have sweet fellowship with him as the hymn said and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joys we share as we tarry there none other has ever known